Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to welcome my fellow lover of Russian literature, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. In honor of this episode, I would like to be known by at least four different names, only three of which have anything to do with each other. How dare you? Yes. So, Annika, would you like to remind us what the clue was at the end of our last episode about what musical we'd be diving into this episode? Why, yes, indeed. I had said that this show featured a star who had to learn how to play the accordion, and so he brought an accordion on tour with him and named it Olga. And that star would be? That would be one Mr. Josh Groban, who is playing Pierre on Broadway, and learned to play the accordion for it. For Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. Indeed, by Dave Malloy. A one-man show when it comes to the writing of this great musical that uh, was fun to revisit. Yeah, very fun. It was it was really cool to dive back into this one. And that will bring us to the speed test. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. Where I will do my best to recall the plot of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 based on Leo Tolstoy's all-time longest novel, War and Peace, um, which obviously this only adapts a small portion of that story, uh, but nevertheless, I will probably do a horrible job at recounting it because can I even remember all the characters' names? Oh. That's a good question. And in the show, they pretty much only have the one name, but it's still complicated. <laughs> but it's still complicated. Like I, the family tree that they printed in the playbill is like necessary. Very. All right, I've got a minute on the clock. Are you ready? Sure. All right. I wish I could give you a countdown in Russian, but I cannot. So I'm just going <laughs> to say three, two, one, plot. Okay. Natasha is in love with, oh my God, I already forgot his name. Um. Oh God. Um. <laughs> she's in love with, Um. she's betrothed to a guy who's off at war. Um, Andre. Um, Andre isn't here. Okay. Uh, uh, she's in, she's betrothed to Andre. He's off at war. Uh, Pierre is his friend and she goes to stay with, um, her aunt. I think Maria is her aunt. Um, and her cousin, who's her best friend, Sonia, and they're just to wait out while he's at war. And then when he comes back, they're going to get married. Uh, she meets, uh, Anatole, who's hot and Pierre's brother-in-law. He seduces her and they kiss and she's suddenly in love with him and they're going to run away together. And then Mari intervenes and is like, absolutely not. Not in my house, biatch. And then, uh, like, Natasha's position is ruined, and she tries to kill herself, and Pierre comes over to console her and get, and raise her spirits, and, and they seem to like each other, and then he sees the Great Comet. That's, wow, that's actually one of the best <laughs> you've ever done, after, after being so uh, sure. Because I didn't get too wrapped up in trying to tell you about all the characters. Um, yeah. Also, I'm pretty sure that Maria is actually Natasha's godmother and not her aunt. You know, I wasn't sure, and that would make a lot more sense since Sonia's like going with her, and that might, it's a new cousin. So, you're, yes, I think you're right. 
the only other character we did, really didn't mention is Helene, who is Pierre's wife, Anatole's sister, and uh, by the opening number, a slut. <laughs> he is a nightmare. And uh, yeah, Dave Malloy talks about using that word and how uh, she, Helene herself kind of reclaims it. So we're okay. But she is a, she's a monster. And I think, I mean, there's some other like minor characters that, um, yeah, with uh, what, what, what the um, Dolokhov, Dolokhov, yep. um, who um, challenges Pierre to a duel, and Dolokhov is like the best dueler in Russia, but somehow misses Pierre, and Pierre does hit him, which is a surprise. So uh, that's really about it, though. That's a, yeah, and then there's Andre's family who are also terrible, and then but they're such a blip. They really are like a blip. They're, they're almost blip. like I would say almost frankly cuttable, but. Yeah, you could probably, you could. Pro I could see an argument for that. Uh, that will bring us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the theme of the show. What is its driving force in the narrative? What uh, is the focus of the adaptation? And I, I, I'll be honest, I struggled with this one a lot because... They claim that it's only 80 pages of a war and peace that they adapted. That's not entirely true. There are um, some events and things that they take from outside of those 80 pages that, you know, make it into the musical. But uh, it is such a focused adaptation that I felt like it should be a bit of, uh, that I should focus on what the adaptation is for that idea. And I don't necessarily know that it is any different than I think the idea that war and peace is exploring which is how to live a moral life in an ethically imperfect world. And I can't take complete credit for that quote. That is like some analysis that I read because there's, there are obviously tons of analysis on War and Peace. But I thought it was, I thought it was particularly fitting because you have Natasha and Pierre who are trying to do what they think is right throughout the entire piece, but having to deal with people who are not acting in good faith all the time. And you even have Sonia who is dealing with that and um, Maria who's dealing with it. There are lots of characters that are contending with how to navigate this messy world and still be good within it. Uh, so I thought it was still particularly fitting, but uh, what, what about you, Annika? What are some of the, what's the thing that you think really drives the show? I mean, it's, it is an interesting one because of all the reasons you've said. And I think it also, it, it is a story, the story is told in a way that is a little bit, I'd say, removed from the interior action. Um, you know, it, it does ask you to comment on it a little bit sometimes. So it, it, it has that sort of sheen of like, you're not completely always engaging with the emotions of the characters um usually i mean i would say definitely that that even though natasha's uh story is the story that drives the show it's really pierre's arc that is the arc that um that is the protagonist's arc really um and just judging from that uh i would say also there's a kind of theme about I mean, it's it's close to what you said, but I I'd tweak it slightly to say sort of living a mindful life, and that it's not it's not too late to examine how you want to live your life. I I'd say is a message that the show has. I mean, it's tricky because what Natasha does, which is almost live too instinctively and too much for her own from her own heart, as opposed to Pierre, who's kind of uh, shut off entirely from that and he's just kind of like going along being completely passive um so in some ways like 
Natasha needs to unlearn that lesson and Pierre needs to learn it more. But, um, but I would say that's kind of where I feel I left the theater with this sort of notion of you can always kind of engage in life in a meaningful way. It's, it, you can always start that process again. No, I think that's great. I, I, that it makes a lot of sense. I mean, cause like, because I think what's very good about that analysis is we do start at, outside of the prologue opening number that's introducing all the characters. We start and meet Pierre and what he wants. And we end with Pierre and seeing the great comet and how that brings new life in him. So I think it's a, I think it's a totally fair parallel kind of analysis to, I think what I was saying, I think they work in tandem. Both our analysis, I think are similar. Yeah, I think so too. Cause I also think that this, this novel, uh, in addition to many Russian novels specifically are often about, you know, the, the many scales by which you live life, society scales, morality scales, religion scales, you know, um, emotional scales. It's like all of these things have to be in some sort of balance um, to, to move forward, to live a successful life. And I, I certainly think this is one. So it's a, it's a, complicated, it's a complicated narrative that they've uh, made simpler for the virtue of musicals. But I think it's kind of one of the virtues of the show is that they haven't super simplified it to the point where it's very obvious. You know, it's still pretty complex. And with that, let's go back to before and examine the origins of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. So normally, Annika does this section um, of this segment, uh, but we actually, we switched roles this week because my research on The Great Comet of 1812 is not with me here in Connecticut. So uh, I spent a lot of time looking into War and Peace and to Leo Tolstoy, uh, who is obviously one of the great authors of all time in the uh, Western canon, even though Russia is not really a Western nation, uh, but we European, even though it's in Asia, that's complicated. But uh, we, <laughs> Leo Tolstoy is absolutely up there in terms of considered one of the greatest authors of all time. He was born to a wealthy uh, aristocratic family in Russia and spent, spent actually and actually spent his formative years serving in the Crimean War and was a successful soldier and actually. Uh, promoted to be a lieutenant, but was appalled by the deaths in war and left the army at the end of the war to travel around Europe. And it was while he was traveling around Europe that he settled into his kind of anarchist philosophy. Uh, and I found a quote of, that kind of summed up his view of the world that I thought was interesting and informative. Uh, quote, the truth is that the state is a conspiracy designed not only to exploit, but above all, to corrupt its citizens. Henceforth, I shall never serve any government anywhere. Uh, and that led him to continue his writing and uh, informed his work and and led him to write War and Peace, which is the epically long, uh, at the first publication was a 1,225 pages uh, with 580 different characters, uh, novel that he didn't call a novel. He called it an epic in prose, which to me is just a pretentious way of saying novel, but uh, it was a novel and uh, a book that um, the first draft was completed in 1863 under the title 1805. 
Uh, it was eventually serialized and published in the Russian Messenger in 1865, but with a very different ending than the final published version. Tolstoy subsequently rewrote the entire thing extensively over the next couple of years, and it was published as War and Peace in 1869, and was immediately translated into other languages and quite the success, selling out copies everywhere and really becoming a mass cultural read. Uh, so obviously it's famous for its length, uh, along with, you know, Moby Dick and some of those other big long books that everyone knows to be long. Uh, but it also is known for being a standard bearer of realist fiction. Uh, many of his contemporaries considered it to be the greatest piece of Russian literature ever written. Uh, and that praise remains to this day. Uh, and one of the notable things too about his about the book and his literary style was his ability to shift back and forth between the very personal viewpoint of various characters and then sweeping omniscient description of events and battles and wars and there is a substantial portion of the novel that are basically essays on his views of war and uh and political philosophy and all that kind of stuff so it it really is a book that influences what we now consider contemporary fiction. So, as my mom would say, fade out, fade in. Uh, many, many years later, in 2007, Dave Malloy, who was a composer, but not a musical theater composer at that point, he was finding his musical path. He was thinking of all of these different various musical styles for himself. So uh, he was working as a pianist on a cruise ship and had a ton of time to kill. So a friend of his recommended that he read the novel War and Peace, which was famously long and covers a lot of time when you are reading it. And he did. And to his surprise, because he had been thinking of it as this sort of dusty classic, he loved it. And he really found himself thinking that it should be a musical, specifically the portion in volume two, book five, which centers around... Um, Natasha's potential downfall and Pierre's awakening. He really, really loved this character of Pierre. He felt um, a great kinship with him and just was totally inspired by this thing. Uh, but at the time, he really wasn't a musical theater writer. And by his own admission, he said he had, quote unquote, barely written three weird semi-musicals. Un end quote. So he really didn't think that this was something that he was going to conquer necessarily but it was in his head and as he moved forward into time he ended up writing more musical-ish pieces including Beowulf A Thousand Years of Baggage in 2009 and a piece called Three Pianos at New York Theatre Workshop for which he collaborated with the director Rachel Chavkin. So as he was kind of towing the waters of this musical theatre world um, he was commissioned by Ars Nova which is a fantastic theater that does um, musicals and plays but also kind of these oddball pieces they really always are looking for artists that are interesting in a lot of different fields um so they had his eye their eye on him um as they have had their eye on many many of the great composers for musicals early on and for this commission malloy said how about a musical version of war and peace and specifically he wanted to do one um that was sort of based on this experience he had had of being in a Russian restaurant where everybody, the musicians were all sitting around with the diners playing and um, everybody had a little instrument and people were all singing along and eating. And it was, it really felt like this kind of 
immersive experience. So he wanted to do that. And he thought that they would say, you're insane for trying to make a musical out of War and Peace. But instead, Jason Egan, who's the head of Ars Nova and just a man who understands that creative visions are sometimes totally insane sounding, was totally into it. And so Dave Malloy went to Rachel Chavkin and said, do you want to work on this with me? And she said, yes. And so they were off to the races. Um, and from the beginning, and just a side note here of appreciation for, for Rachel Chavkin, who I think is one of the most uh, iconic and impressive directors of our time. She really is someone who is almost unique in that she manages to have a complete view of these out-of-the-box productions of shows. They're always interesting, and she always brings more to the pieces than are necessarily what's on the page and it's just great so side note rachel chavkin we have to stand stand. we have to stand rachel chavkin (laughs) yeah we do no choice no choice but to stand no choice no choice (laughs) no choice but to stand uh we love her she's amazing yes so once they had started with this piece, uh, Dave Malloy started to write, and they had two workshops in at Ars Nova um, beginning in 2011. And the show changed a lot over those two workshops, as of course they always do when you're developing a musical early on. Um, one of the changes that happened pretty early on was that the show began with the number Pierre. It kind of dropped right into this heavier number about who Pierre is and, and how he's kind of depressed and stuck. Um, And a lot of people said that they had trouble keeping track of who was who. So Malloy decided to write an opening number um, that explained who everybody was in a kind of hilarious way. And I love this fact, because Malloy had taught preschool for three years, he knew that the best way to make people remember something that was in a song was a cumulative song. So, you know, everybody has a verse and then you add on to it, which is exactly what the prologue of the show does. You know, Andre isn't there, is the last one. And as you get added, it goes through all the people you previously learned, um, which is just goes to show that when you're making a musical, all of this inspiration comes from the places you would least expect. Um, so, when they were bringing this show to Ars Nova, they had a very interesting challenge, which is that Ars Nova is a very small, small space. So what they decided to do, considering they had this inspiration, as I said, with, with Dave Malloy's vision of this restaurant, and Rachel Shabkin loves these sort of immersive-esque experiences, they went to Mimi Lien, who is a brilliant designer who works a lot with Rachel Chapkin, and she turned the space into an 87-seat bistro where the performers were mostly on a stage that snaked around the whole room. Some of the musicians were sitting with the audience. The audience sat in the middle um, at tables where they ate dumplings and drank vodka, and sometimes the characters would come and sit with them. Um, So it was this really unusual seating element i mean it was it was so different from anything that was happening at that time um and i know because i saw it there and i will say that as amazing as it was to be just surrounded by this piece happening all around you um the downside of it was that part of my memory of seeing that show at ars nova when it was there was that i was sitting on a a wooden stool a tall wooden stool and uh as as amazing as it is to to have an unusual seating venue, I will say it is excruciating, no matter how much you like the show, um, to sit on a wooden stool for as long as the show is. So part of my memory of that original production is, oh my God, my butt hurts so much. Anyway, 
The program featured a hand-drawn map of the characters and their relationship to each other. The whole thing was a little bit uh, scrappy. And Dave Malloy, who wrote it, was not only playing the piano and the accordion in the show, he was the musical director and he played Pierre. So it really had this kind of sense of like a, a theater troupe having thrown this together. Um, and even though it was off-Broadway, as technically what Ars Nova is, um, there was a lot of buzz around this from the get-go. The initial run sold out in a day and the extension sold out equally fast, although uh, there was a brief interruption by Hurricane Sandy. And it was clear from this initial run that there was something special here. So commercial producers came on board, led by Howard and Janet Kagan, who were Ars Nova board members and newer producers. Um, and it was clear to them that the show should go further, but it was also unclear how this should happen because this was such an unusual and specific production. Just moving it to a proscenium house did not feel right. So the answer was to build a tent in the meatpacking district, and they called it Club Casino. So what they basically did was expand upon the Ars Nova run and this feeling of being in this quasi-bistro performance venue where you were really surrounded from the moment you stepped in by this feeling, by this, this design, by the style of the show. Um, and the tent had 199 seats, which was more than as, at Ars Nova, but it was still pretty tiny. But as long as the, they had the lease on the space, the show sold out. And after that, they decided to move the tent to 45th Street. So it was getting closer and closer to Broadway. But it kept building with every step. It was building more audiences. It was building more buzz. They were changing it. They were refining it. They were really making it something. And so eventually it was it was clear that maybe they should make a run for Broadway, even though everybody was questioning how, how that would be possible. But they decided to do it. Before they did that, though, they did a run at ART in Boston, um, which allowed them to work on the show even further. And Dave Malloy had stepped away from the show playing Pierre, so he was actually able to focus on refining the show without having himself in it, which was helpful for everybody. So one of the people who had seen the show when it was in the tent was Josh Groban, the megastar singer who has a million albums and is uh, apparently a show nerd um, who had gone to Carnegie Mellon for musical theater but dropped out to record his first album. But he had seen the show and he had just fallen totally in love with it. So the producers found out about this and they realized that he would be a perfect Pierre for the Broadway run. Um, although he couldn't go to ART with the show because of his tour schedule. But since they had Josh Groban signed on, Malloy now uh, wrote some of the show with the knowledge that he had one of the best voices on the planet playing Pierre, um, which of course was a part that he had begun writing for himself and he's not really a singer so he wrote a new song for josh groban called dust and ashes which is towards the end of the first act that is pretty astounding and really gets to the heart of the show in my mind so it's kind of hard to imagine it without that song totally agree yeah yeah it's kind of i mean i, I sort of was trying to remember what was there before that but um nothing nothing was there just the duel it's just it's just it, it was kind of crazy it like it's insane to me because the song is so necessary. And Dust and Ashes is always the song that I put at the end of the show, because in my mind, it's the big 11 o'clock number, but it is not. <laughs> it's not even the okay. 11 o'clock number of the first act. So anyway, um, so that's, you know, that good things can happen when you have great people on your team. So when they transferred to Broadway, uh, they, had, they had two members of the cast who had been with the show since the very, very first workshop. Um, and many of them who had been with it since Ars Nova, but they had these new cast members, Josh Groban 
and Danae Benton, who replaced Philip Asu, who uh, had already gone over to Hamilton Land. Um, and they added, of and course, Grace. Amelie? How dare you erase Amelie from Philip Asu's resume? Well, at this point, it was pre-Amelie, wasn't it? She hadn't done Amelie yet. Amelie was in the, is in the exact same season, because it's 2017. Oh. Oh, I'm so sorry. And so finally, it did come to Broadway, and a credit Mimi Lien, who completely redid the Imperial Theater, transformed it into this multi-level staircases, red velvet jewel box with these beautiful um, chandeliers that, that hung down and audience members that were seated, seated in tables and chairs in the audience. But it wasn't, it was not quite what you would imagine. It was all wrapped around these things. I mean, it was crazy and beautiful and gorgeous and it was like you were inside like something between a hipster's mind and like a a beautiful like red velvet music box it was perfection and gorgeous and credit to them for making this thing in the in the right way um and on broadway you still were given little dumplings in um boxes so you still got that element of eating even though um, obviously it wasn't quite what the Ars Nova was, where it was down and dirty and, and vodka. So the opening night was November 2016, and it got 12 Tony nominations and pretty great reviews, but it only won two Tonys. It was a tough year. It was Dear Evan Hansen and Come From Away were its competition that year. But it really was a groundbreaking show. And after it opened, it didn't really tour because it's it's quite unusual in its production style as we've said and, and that does pose a lot of challenges it's hard to just pop it into places like you need in a tour but there have been international productions um an ecuador production a brazil production um a production in japan a korean production is um scheduled to be started i think or was at least but um it's really hit a nerve across the world. And also a shout out to Sam Pinkleton, who is also a genius person and did the choreography for the show when it came to Broadway. There wasn't any in Ars Nova because the theater was too small. So Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside A Call to Pierre. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so for this one, there's just another bounty of songs you could possibly do. Uh, it's a really, really musically rich show. Every song is fascinating, both in the instrumentation, uh, the orchestration, and just in the, the storytelling. But what I chose to do is the song A Call to Pierre, which I actually really like a lot, even though it's, it's sort of almost a transitional kind of recitative moment more than it is a sit down aria character piece. So if you want to go listen to the song, take a listen. I'm listening to the original Broadway cast recording. So go have a listen, then come on back and we'll chunk it up so you can hear little parts of it. All right. Wasn't that fun? Probably. Um, so basically this song is towards the end of the show. It's not at the end of the show, but it's, it's getting there. Natasha has rejected Andre and tried to elope with Anatole. Um, but Anatole has been thwarted by Maria because Maria knew, thanks to Sonia, that this was happening. 
then Natasha has, is so upset that she has attempted to poison herself and is very sick but has survived. So this number is Maria basically handling the situation by coming to Pierre, who is very powerful in society because he's extremely rich, um, but also kind of a mess of a human person, which this song will nicely illustrate. So this is a really interesting song. I, I would say Dave Malloy is most comfortable with his character arias. Um, and there's, there's a few in this show that are really, really gorgeous. Pierre's Dust and Ashes, as I've said several times on here, is just a really gorgeous song. Um, Natasha's number, No One Else, in the first act is another one. Um, really, just both of them full of lots of interesting pieces and beautiful things. Um, it's a really interesting thing in this show. The whole thing sounds like it's translated. Uh, there's almost no rhymes. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, and a lot of leitmotifs and, and instrumentation that are tied to one character. Um, but this one is something a little bit different. So this is um, something that isn't the kind of Dave Malloy wheelhouse, uh, which is sort of more generally laid back, a little more presentational, more passive than active in general. And he said that this song was by far the hardest for him to write in the show. He went through tons of versions. Um, it has to contain a lot of information. It's definitely an exposition song number, uh, musical moment. But so much else happens in the act, we can't really sit here for that long. Basically what happens in this song is that Maria tells Pierre what has happened and Pierre is spurred to go find Anatole and tell him that he has to get out of town. And that's it, but, that, but there's a lot. You know, Maria has to learn that Anatole is married. You know, Pierre has to react to this. He's, he's very passive, there's a whole lot. So apparently what Dave Malloy has said is that the earlier versions of the song were much slower and stodgier because these are two of the older characters in the show. So he wanted to sort of show that, that they're not um, full of this kind of vim and verve of the younger characters, but that really wasn't working. And one night after rehearsals for the tent production, uh, he decided to trick himself as a writer and try to make it the coolest song in the show instead of being the temperament that he had been writing before that was not working. So that's what he tried and weirdly it worked and he came out with this. And so I chose it because even though this is not something that I think he was comfortable with originally, this kind of song, he really does an excellent job here of illustrating these two characters, both of whom... Um, I mean, you get a lot of Pierre, obviously, but you really haven't gotten too much depth into Maria. Um, but you see them together and you, this song conveys exactly what's at stake at this pretty high stakes moment. So let's dive in. A letter from Maria Dmitrievna asking you to come and visit her on a matter of great importance related to Andrei Volkonsky and his betrothed what? what can they want with me? All right, so here already we know a lot. I love this opener with this kind of low strings um, arpeggio. 
uh, it starts out at this low formal staid moment and then climbs up to this almost fever pitch because Mari is a character who very much works within society's limits. She understands how society works. She knows how important it is to take these rules seriously as opposed to some of the younger characters, namely Natasha, who don't think that the rules of society necessarily apply to her in the same way or are as important as something like her love for Anatole. Um, but even though we've started with this kind of grand gesture at the very beginning, we can also feel the, the energy and tension here in that building arpeggio. And that sets up this letter beautifully because it's very formal. It's a, it's a servant singing the letter that has come from Maria. And we can hear in this language that's very proper, very uh, official. But we also know something's up, thanks partially to this opening arpeggio. And then you get Pierre's what, which is so rough. And this is Josh Groban. It actually is, I think, probably harder for him to sound like this than it is for him to sound like a, an angel. Um, it's so rough. It's kind of drawn out. You can tell he's both surprised and a little pissed. It's a little bit rude. It doesn't sound like someone who's used to dealing with society with Pierre, frankly, is not. He's not someone who cares about this. He doesn't fit in this world. Um, he's an awkward guy. But then we get this much more introspective, what can they want with me? Which is entirely in the clear. There's no music here. He truly doesn't know what is going on here. Um, this moment always reminds me of Les Mis. There's a fair amount of Les Mis in the show, I think. <laughs> Friend, I'm sorry it's late. I'm sorry I haven't seen you about. Where have you been? Where have you been? I have been studying. So this this is great. So you get this fantastic kind of coiled energy music with Maria. Um, we and these these strings, these low strings. I think these are double basses, but that low string sound is so her, right? It's it's the perfect instrument to accompany her. She's elegant. She's grounded. She's formidable. Um, she's not sort of flighty and uh, feminine. She's not like a, like a violin kind of lady. She's definitely got this kind of depth to her, um, this earthiness. But they do that dive down right before she speaks. These, these, these strings are just like slipping down the drain. Everything is in a tailspin. And that's against the background of this fast kind of jangly repeated rhythm, which sounds like a panicked heartbeat. You really get the sense that everything is falling apart but also she's trying to keep it together here but there's a lot of energy and her lines here are so great because she's still going through the motions of the proper social etiquette these are small talk you know i'm sorry i haven't seen you about i'm sorry i haven't um seen you more often this is just all this like oh it's i'm so sorry it's late um but she's also in a complete state and where have you been which is a line that could be very casual and friendly, like, where have you been? Oh my God, I haven't seen you in so long, is a real question here. It's both. And she's repeating it twice. He's been in the middle of this situation, right? Anatole is his brother-in-law. He spends a lot of time hanging out with Anatole. He knows Natasha from childhood. Uh, these are all people that he has been around, and yet he has picked up on nothing. He doesn't know anything that's going on. So I think there's this is a double meaning here in these lines both the kind of like oh where have you been she's trying to keep it light but at the same time she's like so frustrated at him that perhaps he's been around this and hasn't 
raised a red flag. It hasn't done, hasn't done anything to potentially stop this. And of course, then we have this great, I have been studying in this kind of just droopy line that just kind of plucks off down um, and away. There's no energy in this. And he's not picking up on her state or realizing the urgency or realizing that he's, she's not really asking for a real answer here, right? This is kind of a rhetorical question, but he's, I have been studying, right? It's the most kind of passive. It's this limp flower that he is. Um, and of course she's, she's going to have to work a little harder to get him to rouse up, which, which she's going to do. Pierre, old friend, we need your help. Pierre, old friend of the family name, we need your help. We need your help. There's a ruin at the door. Um, I just want to give a shout out here to the vocal performances of both Grace McLean and Josh Groban. You go, you don't get to hear a, a ton of Josh Groban's uh, vocal, the, the tricks he's doing with his voice in this show, in this particular number, but he does really uh, use his voice as such a instrument of show of storytelling. You can, however, hear a lot of it with Grace McLean. Um, she is obviously a fantastic singer. She's got a gorgeous voice, but also just you can hear how much she's getting through, even while she's singing, even while it sounds great. Um, the performance here and the color that she's giving these different lines, whether they're kind of forced out of her or a little bit more controlled, you can hear it with every single one. It's just exceptional. But okay, so Maria in this moment, she's, this is a character that's normally totally together, but you can tell she's coming apart here because the lines are coming out in fragments. She just says, Pierre, old friend, the family name, we need your help. She's not, she's not finishing her lines. This is just all like banging around um, her head and there's ruin at the door, right? And to illustrate this, We've got this fantastic thing that Dave Malloy does. He's done it once before, um, which is these voices coming in, these the ensemble singing um, these ha kind of breathy notes in the background. This is actually a kind of choral singing that's called hawking, which is when a single melody is shared between two groups. And it's from the 13th or 14th century. It's quite old, but they used it before in letters. And what it sounds like here is society, right? Maria is talking about uh, there's ruin at the door. The family name is clearly at up in the air. It, it could all be ruined. And to illustrate this, we have the sound of all of these voices in these society people potentially laughing. It's They're all saying ha, but also just talking to each other, right? We're starting to have musically illustrated for us what's going to happen, which is there's going to be gossip. There's going to be laughter at this family's downfall. It's all hanging by a thread. And this technique was used earlier in the number letters, which is all about how Russian society communicates. So it's directly referencing the news spreading in this really gorgeous way. And of course, then we have there's ruin at the door, um, which Grace McLean, such a genius. It sounds like it's that note is escaping from her torso. This like beast is being unleashed. Um, it's a great note, but it's also perfectly visceral and angry. Um, and then she stops and, and all of these low strings take over with this galloping fall, right? It sounds like the family name is just jumping off a cliff. Maria. Natasha has let down the family. What? Natasha has broken with Andre. Natasha has tried to elope. What? Natasha, and now Natasha, oh, 
great. Pierre is such an idiot. <laughs> you know, she's so upset. She ha she stopped singing. We get these these strings jumping off the cliff. He has to draw her out a little bit with Mario, which is probably the most active he is in this entire song. Um, but then she she lays out what has happened with one inflammatory line after another, kind of building a little bit. But you can tell that she's just laying it out. And all he can say is what over and over. And not even in a sort of like angry, upset way, in a sort of stunned way. Pierre is very much not a man of action. Um, and it makes sense that her, we need your help, which she has said for now the third and fourth time, feels extremely barbed here. This is a time sensitive manner. He's just basically standing there. She's, she's kind of yelling at him here. Natasha, that charming girl, I can't believe my ears. So I am not the only man chained to a bad woman. And Anatole, that stupid child, they'll lock him up for years. For Anatole is a married man! So Pierre is pretty naive. He can't believe that Natasha would do that. But he also immediately jumps into this navel-gazing self-pity with this line... I can't believe my ears, so I am not the only man chained to a bad woman. Because, of course, his wife, Elaine, is a nightmare person, and he is chained to a bad woman that's been a bad marriage from the start. She openly cheats on him, and he's completely... Pa he knows it's happening, but he doesn't really do anything about it almost ever. But this situation is not about him. And Natasha is not the same as Helene. And to say chained to a bad woman is just... ugh. It's so frustrating. And also it's so Pierre because instead of doing something, he just kind of thinks about the situation. This is, this is Pierre's kind of perpetual problem. He's pondering it. He's always thinking about what that means in terms of him and how sad. And, and then he says this line, he pulls out of it a little bit when he think, he's thinking of Anatole. He calls Anatole a stupid child which is an interesting thing to call him. I mean, on the one hand, it's good that it actually feels like he's speaking without thinking about it first, which is a nice change, but that's not the right thing to say about Anatole. Anatole has been the orchestrator of an event that will truly ruin Natasha. But Pierre is happy to say that Natasha is bad and Anatole is just sort of dumb, always foolish. She's a foolish child. Anatole is much worse than that. He has set up a situation that is that is truly ruinous for his own fun, basically. So Pierre just really doesn't quite get it. And then, of course, the big reveal here is uh, the lock him up for years for Ara Anatole is a married man. And I love the drama here of having that note go high. It's, it is new information. It's important information to Maria. And it's appropriate that it gets this dramatic peak. But it's interesting to, to hear what, what happens next. Married. He's married. Yes. Oh, wait till I tell her. Poor Andre. And when Andre comes home, he will challenge Anatole to one to and get himself killed. And all will be So I love this reaction that Maria has to this information that married, he's married. You can tell she's stunned by that information. Pierre confirms it. And Maria has this interesting line, oh, wait till I tell her. And this is a fascinating thing. Grace McLean kind of gives it almost a, a more trilling sound. It's an interesting sound on this note. And I think what's happening here is 
that this news to Maria is both good and bad. It's bad because this is the worst thing that could have happened. If this elopement had happened, Natasha would truly, truly, truly have been 100% ruined because not only would she have broken off her engagement to marry someone else, she would not be married. She would, she would be ruined. Nobody would marry her ever. She would be spoiled, basically. Um, and that really would have ruined the family name. If they could have gotten married, it would have been bad, but not quite that bad. But I think it's also a good thing a little bit for Maria because it didn't happen, but also because Maria's warnings were all correct. In the last number where she's just tearing into Natasha about why didn't he come? Why didn't he just court you? What is this? What is happening? He's bad. This is bad news. Uh, she was correct. This was, this was a bad sign. Um, and the good sign that Anatole is a bad person. Uh, so I think what she's doing here is giving it a little bit of a spin. She loves Natasha, but she also has a little bit of I told you so here. A, there's a tiny, tiny bit of joy, I think, in her telling Natasha um, because she was so right and Natasha really effed this one up so badly. But... This is a kind of, I think this is one of those great songs where there's a lot of performer's choice here. You could just be overwhelmed with the thought of having to tell Natasha, which is going to break her heart even more because now Anatole is going to be revealed as the true villain he is. But also maybe that's a good thing because Natasha just poisoned herself for love of this man and to be able to prove that he's not worthy of this love might also be helpful. Um, and then you get uh, Pierre's poor Andre, which is truly felt... Andre is Pierre's friend. He's obviously not here, as this first song has told us. And now he's been dumped and publicly humiliated, basically. His fiance has left him for another man, um, scandal, etc. And Andre has had his heart broken. They loved each other. They really did. Natasha loved him. Andre loved her. And now that is destroyed. And then you get Maria's. When Andre comes home, he will challenge Anatole to a duel and get himself killed and all will be ruined. And this is interesting too, because perhaps it's Pierre saying poor Andre that reminds Maria of uh, Andre in this particular situation and how everything could play out because she's very practical and she's wise and this is a terrible situation. And I love that you have those, the chorus having gone from that, that hawking ha um, kind of smooths it out and then it comes up to this sort of nightmarish buzzing almost by the end of that line and all will be ruined. Um, but I think there's also a chance that she's so fed up with Pierre's complete passivity because he's doing this again, right? This is, she's telling him all this stuff. And instead of saying, I got to go fix this, I got to go get him, or I got to go avenge her honor or, you know, whatever he could do, he could go do something and he's not doing anything. He's just saying, poor Andre. He's always, always taking the passive choice. So I think there's a chance here that Maria is actually skillfully manipulating Pierre here by, by pointing out that if he doesn't do something, his friend will end up dead. But Either way, you can hear her just spitting out these words. She's shed all over the veneer of polite formality that she kind of tried to maintain a little bit at the very beginning of this song. That's totally gone. She's just now focused on what has to happen, focused on uh, her anger, her righteous rage at this situation. You 
must go see your brother-in-law and tell him that he must leave Moscow and not dare to let me set my eyes on him again at once. I love that ending. I love it because we get, the buzzing goes away and she just lays it all out for him with her sort of spirit instruments behind her doing that jumping off the cliff right but now it's just coming at him in waves all of this power that is this character um she just has to tell him what to do you must go see your brother-in-law and tell him that he must leave moscow and not dare to let me set my eyes on him again it's so clear there's no ambiguity she's just making him know that this is what has to happen. There is such fury burning in these lines. And she gets that another one of those high belts on set my eyes on him again. And what can Pierre do in the face of this? It, he immediately says at once. And, and that's the end of the song. I, it's, I love that. It's what else are you going to do? What are you going to do in the face of this power this woman who's just like glowing with righteous rage at you and from her gut is coming this instruction this very clear instruction and one of the reasons i love this part so much is because i think this whole song actually makes a sneaky very good point about gender in this society maria is ready to murder anatole and i think if she could she would go and and avenge Natasha, tell Anatole to get out of town, challenge him to a duel, whatever she had to do to fix this situation, which has really hurt this girl that she cares a great deal about, even though she's also mad at her for having potentially ruined her own life. But, but Maria can't do that because she's a woman and she's a woman with position in this society. So in order to get what she needs to have done, she has to go to Pierre who has freedom and has power in this society because he's very wealthy. Um, so she has to go to him to get him to do what she can't do herself. But it's so clear from this whole song that Pierre is the opposite of Maria. He doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't really understand anything going on around him or really the repercussions to the degree that they are repercussions. He's just kind of contemplating what this means for him and oh man that's going to be so sad for andre but he's not able to actually see that this is still a situation that's actively happening that anatole needs to uh do something to both save his own butt and also be punished in some way he needs to just be away um because maria is almost all, almost afraid of what she will do to him if she sees him so i think it's a really interesting comment because Maria is going through the correct channels that she has to get to in order to make what needs to happen happen but at the same time she is the one who is so much better positioned to be able to handle this situation Pierre is kind of a lump in this moment um and just the opposite of a man of action so over the course of this song we see that he has been finally spurred to do what he needs to do, which is to go find Anatole and actually sort of contemplate participating in life a little bit more, which he sort of tried in the first act, didn't really go particularly well. The duel was kind of half a suicide attempt. Um, 
Here he's finally going to have to engage, and Maria has really used every tool in her arsenal to get him to engage. So it's a really cool song, I think. Really two stellar performances in this album. But also just a little tiny snippet of what Dave Malloy is working with, which is a really just wide span of different styles, different instruments, um, different techniques. It's a grab bag, and it's, it's really a delight. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the controversies surrounding the show, both internal and external to it. So let's start with why the show closed in the first place, which was a bit premature by a lot of people's estimation and due to a bit of a casting and producing controversy. To set it up, as long as Josh Groban was in the show, it was selling very well, but unfortunately he couldn't stay in the show forever and had to go back to the glamorous touring lifestyle of a music icon and was replaced by the actor Okirite Anaudawan, usually referred to as Oak, who had originated the role of Hercules Mulligan in Hamilton. So, Annika, why don't you take it from there? Yeah, absolutely. So he was in the show for a little bit, and it was he was scheduled for a limited run. And at the end of that run, the producers uh, decided to bring in Mandy Patinkin to play Pierre who obviously is a major musical theater star, legend, um, television star, much bigger star than Oak. Um, However, the only time that Mandy could do it was during the last three weeks of Oak's run. So um, they told Oak that he had the last three weeks basically off. um, And he, and this was picked up as a story um, because lots of people started to get very upset at what they perceived to be a black actor being replaced by a white actor. Um, So the show was accused of racism in brief and there was a huge cry on social media. Some, some other famous uh, black actors were speaking out against the treatment of this. Um, Then Mandy decided to uh, withdraw from the project saying that he hadn't understood the whole situation. Um, The producers were trying to say that they had invited Oak back after the run, but Oak was saying that um, he was never told that officially. It became very, very complicated. And basically, I mean, clearly there were other factors because it was quite expensive to run because it was so ornate. Um, And so the show was not doing uh, the business it needed to do with Oak in it. and was and you know obviously when a show does, can't can't make its uh, more than it costs to run it, um, then the show has to approach closing. So this didn't help anything. Basically, they weren't able to um, recover ever from the bad press of this, and they weren't able to get someone else who might have been a name that would sell tickets, a la Josh Groban, because all of the actors who might have done that didn't want to be involved in the show at all. So. Um, the show closed, uh, sort of a truncated run. And what was especially frustrating about the situation for a lot of people was that the show was one of the most diverse on Broadway. It had a lot of people in the cast who were not white, and um, 
so the fact that this was the show that was being accused of racism was really galling to some people because it it felt like of all the shows to choose when there are so many shows on broadway which is such a white industry and so often you get a show that's almost all white with like a, a token person of color in the ensemble that the show that was committed to diversity was the one that was taken down for racism was really something something else i think in so many ways the controversy was I mean, we're talking, it was like July slash August of 2017, if I'm not um, mistaken. And I think particularly in uh, the artistic and quite liberal community that is that makes up the theater industry, that's a very sensitive time uh, in terms of the 45th president being in office and the Charlottesville uh, incident and his reaction to it. And I think... I think the community was particularly sensitive to uh, minorities and to uh, their struggles and their oppression and saw this as a moment to be able to speak up on behalf of minorities and to uh, to try and correct some of Broadway's not so inclusive past, I think. Um, so this, I think, became kind of a touchstone issue for that. And I, I can't... I. I don't want to say that it would be different in a different moment in time, but I do think it was particularly, it was a particularly flammable time, inflammatory time for, for this kind of an issue. So uh, I, th I think that's kind of the way to sum it up. I, I think it's a real shame that it, that the controversy and the whole incident like came on the show, but it is, should be noted that it is, it, it was not well handled by uh, the producing team. And if the show weren't in the situation that it were in, it this incident might not have been so impactful to its overall run, but unfortunately it was. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really, I think unfortunate is definitely the word for it. Um, anyway, it was a big old mess of a situation and a really sad one ultimately because that show did deserve to run longer and perhaps it could have eked through to a longer run. Um, if that hadn't happened. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is, I think a critique that is thrown at the show is that the show itself isn't that great, but it's a great production and, and like an aesthetic on display almost that you are a part of this experience, but I'm not sure that the underlying show is very good. I think that the production is making it seem a lot better than it actually is. I definitely, I had a wonderful time at the Broadway production. I thought it was incredible but I absolutely said that I I fell into that camp of thinking like I don't know that the show itself is very good but I would go see it again and again and again because again it was so fun uh now having done the work and read it listened to it and examined it a little more I think I'm going back on that assertion I think the show is actually better or deeper than you would think having just seen it so I guess the, the question really is, if one, Annika, would you agree with that assessment? And two, is it possible that such a fantastically designed, directed, executed, choreographed production, one of the best, I think, in terms of actual thing I think I've ever seen, can somehow actually diminish a show that is really good? Or does it just enhance it? So two-part question. Two-part question. Okay, well, first of all, I know exactly what you mean. I, I too, was skeptical. My journey with this show was interesting because 
as I said, I did see it at Ars Nova when it was just in its little first run. And I, I didn't love it when I saw it then. I remember very much thinking it was the tonal shift was too much for me because both acts began with a kind of like clever, like, oh my God, we have too many names. And like, here's how to keep it straight. And like, people send letters. And, and then the tone of the rest of the show is so serious that I just kind of had this tonal whiplash where it was like, wait, what? You know, you're kind of like beginning the show as though you're going to be commenting on some of the, the things that are true for this show the whole way. And then immediately you don't do that at all, which I think is kind of a little bit like, if there's a criticism to be made of the show, it's like the, the hipster elements of it, the things that are kind of defined by shows written around this time are certainly present in it. But, um, when I saw it on Broadway, I thought that they had done such an extraordinary job of smoothing that particularly uh, out that it, it no longer felt like they were introducing it, each act as a completely different show to what the show was. It really felt like a coherent piece um, so much more. But but I also will say I, I, I was so blown away by the production that I think I, I might have thought the same thing. And, and actually it was when I re read it and listened to it again that I realized how unique it is really and in some ways i think the uniqueness of the production although i do think it enhances the show and it, and it's such a key part of the whole show it in some ways does diminish the uniqueness of the music a little bit i don't think when you're in this thing and you're you're seeing the performers coming down the aisle at you and you're eating your dumpling and i don't think you quite register how interesting a lot of that music is because everything is so new that's coming at you that you're sort of in this like wow you know zone uh so that is to say i think the answer falls somewhere in between um i do think it'll be very very interesting when people do this show in a different way um to see what happens with it like is there a tiny theater you know that's going to do this show um in a proscenium and is it going to work then um i think it probably will i mean i i really enjoy reading it and i really enjoy listening to it um i i do totally agree with you though that the experience of sitting in that theater and uh watching this show in that set surrounded by that red velvet gold paintings like all of that having all of the cast running around was one of the single most extraordinary theatrical experiences and hearing josh groban's voice live surrounded by acoustically friendly materials on all of the walls was revelatory to me i mean i can't think of an experience and obviously i've spent my life listening to beautiful singers sing beautifully. Um, I was blown away. I mean, I, I, I've never experienced anything like hearing a voice like that in a setting like that. It was extraordinary. I mean, to this day, I, I deeply regret not having gone back more than I did because, and bringing my husband and bringing my friends, because just to hear that, I was like, oh my God, I just, it was, mind-blowingly amazing like obviously I knew Josh Groban was an amazing singer but like I don't think I fully understood what that voice is until I was there experiencing it and that was amazing yeah I mean I, I yeah I agree I mean the, the production was extraordinary and I think obviously groundbreaking and um in the way it was interpreted but I think it also 
you know, where I would say that I think the show will struggle on a proscenium uh, is because of that structure you talk about that that um, we're going to comment on and basically narrate what we're doing and then we'll have moments of introspection and moments where we're with a character in an aria of sorts, which is a strength and a weakness and I actually think is a great callback to the praise of the original novel, that he had this ability to kind of put commentary on a whole wash of things and then have these real introspective moments with characters. I, I think it... It's an interesting parallel that I think is successful with the piece, but I do think that on a because we didn't have a proscenium setting, the rules were already being broken. So for a character to describe what they were doing as they were moving about a space, because there really wasn't a space, we were just in space with them, it totally worked. Whereas if you're going to present a realistic or a more realistic setting for each place or you know a more traditional example of how we think musicals are staged I think then the show will suffer a little bit from that because I, I think it then prevents you from being emotionally connected to the characters in the same way that you are when that proscenium doesn't exist and when those conventions are being broken all the time uh, just by nature of how it's conceived and staged um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting you bring up those points because I, because there is underlying all of this, like the uh, between Dust and Ashes and um, Sonia's aria uh, in the kind of top of Act Two, which is um, so stunning and moved um, a, a ton of people both times that I saw it, uh, and Natasha's various moments. I mean, I think the show has strengths that a lot of other shows don't when it comes to emotional introspection, but it also cuts against that with its narrative style. So I, it is a, it is an interesting problem for the show's future. I don't know that it can be divorced from the iconic conception of that Broadway production in terms of other theaters producing it, um, unless they do want to build a tent and do something unconventional with their audience, which I think this show is obviously great for. Uh, but I, in some ways, it would be like revolutionary to watch it on, on a proscenium and see how that works. Like that's going to take either complete ignorance or real bravery, and I'm not quite sure where that will where that will land. And like I say, I grew more appreciation for the show reading and listening to it and really seeing those lyrics. I'm also one of those people who like when I watch a movie or I watch television, I turn on the closed captioning because it just like helps me kind of focus on it and, and understand it. Uh, so to be able to kind of follow my own bouncing ball through the script was super helpful. And I was like, oh, I'm getting so much more than I did when it was just Grace McLean being fabulous at the top of the stairs and me like living my best right. life, <laughs> listening to her go in my house. <laughs> it's like, that's stunning. Well. It also doesn't always help you so much because it's like there's there's very few rhymes. A lot of it is almost recitative in terms of just like the dialogue is is on music, which is both great, but it sometimes means that you miss some stuff, you know. I mean, I think it's it's kind of funny that Dave Malloy says the thing about having the the repeating cumulative song at the very beginning because like the rest of it gives you no help like that <laughs> pretty much ever, you know. Truly. And, and also, like, you know, it's it also becomes so clear. And even when I watched it, the, the musical sophistication that with which he wrote the score is really 
stunning and really and breathtaking and and much closer in many ways. I think he himself calls it a pop opera, but it yeah. in some ways much closer to opera than it is uh, to musical theater in in so many ways. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, he calls it a, an electro pop opera, is how he refers to it. But um, but I agree, it's it's so complex. And and what's interesting too is if you read his annotations on his own script he's pulling from so many different places, you know, Radiohead, Bjork, um, Les Mis, like it, he's really one of those people who clearly is, and I think this is probably helped by the fact that he clearly never defined himself as a particular style of music, um, musician, composer. Um, he's, he's just pulling all this stuff. And it's funny, when I went to see Octet, uh, Dave Malloy had done something which I loved and am blatantly going to steal for future programs where there was a list and maybe it wasn't his idea but there was a list in the program of all of the things that had inspired him when he was writing the show just uh, just a bunch of names of books and art, movies and whatever it was was all thrown in there and you can see that this was similar I mean there's no list of things but what I so appreciated about that is for every writer, you know, they're pulling from a lot of different places. And uh, for Dave Malloy, I think that's especially true, given that he has no qualms about creating something that's overtly a mishmash of a bunch of different things, you know, war and peace, all of those musical styles, throwing in like these different instrumentations, you know, like the fact that Anatole has his own like electro music themes you know you're getting these interesting things um even to the point of like vocal ability i mean he talks about uh josh groban like writing dust and ashes so that by the time he's getting to the end of this song which is all about this kind of purity he's he's using his unadulterated pure voice whereas in the middle it's in the beginning it's all kind of um a little more rasping and and grou grouchy and kind of a different sound um, so there's just storytelling woven into all of these different levels of things. And it's it's really fascinating to see. And to combine that kind of writing talent with Rachel Chavkin, who puts storytelling in every one of the dramatic elements, um, and who has a team that clearly does the same thing with the costumes and the sets, um, it's just kind of a feast, which means the detriment is that, you know, you might not be able to focus on one course um, at one time. But and the, but the you know the inverse of that would be because there is so much going on all the time and there is so much music and it does kind of have this kind of uh, that quality to it or just that aspect to it. Um, even reading it when you get to that very last the one moment of spoken dialogue, it's hugely like it impacts you so and i like i i think i read that quote like three or four times because i or not that quote i think i read that line like four times because i was like i really want to make sure i totally understand what is being said because it clearly is extremely important to this and and so yeah i guess in i, I who knows if it is the most successful version of that but i think it is successful and i think it does work yeah absolutely i agree and that brings us to our favorite things these are a few of my favorite things so annika what is your favorite song in natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 
Well, I've said this before. I love, I just love Dust and Ashes. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a great pick. It's a great pick. Yeah, I mean, and I, I will say I really do like the score a lot. And there's a lot of musical moments that I, I love a lot. But as a song, just on its own, um, that's my fave. Yeah, uh, respect it, respect it. Michael, what is your favorite song? Well, I did struggle with this a little bit because I love the opening number and I think it's a I think it's pretty fantastic and the kind of the perfect way to open the show and I get it stuck in my head a lot. But I have to give it to Balaga. I love Balaga and I know I think I've, I think this is unpopular and this is like I think probably stems from my like childhood loving musicals and always loving the production numbers and like skipping over every other song famously there's so many famous examples of songs that i now skip over that in my childhood were my absolute favorite but i thought balaga was like the party of the year that i wanted to spend all my time at i thought it was the perfect embodiment of the spirit of the show of the concept of this being all around and just this insane environment and i i remember sitting there like in my amazing, I got to go on Tony seats, toss, toss, um, in my amazing seats, just being like, I, they could do this for another 15 minutes and I'd be totally fine with it. I think the song's catchy. It's upbeat. It's fun. Um, and I think I'm, I, 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 I know that I'm not, I, I, that is probably not a popular opinion, but I'm standing by it because I love Malaga. I think you should stand by it. I don't agree with you. I'm I'm in the the I'm not anti Balaga. I think it's a very fun song. My problem with it was that it did feel to me like it was a party that I was distinctly not invited to, and it, that was it, it. Just felt like I was watching people have fun, but not necessarily sharing in that fun. And that's not my favorite feeling. But also, I'm like a you know. I like the story to continue. So every time they kind of stop and are like, we, I'm like, all right, get back to it guys. And I think that's kind of part of why I enjoyed it too, is because it's such an infusion of that, like uh, that visceral energy in act two that I think without it, you're struggling because it is like very dark and things get really go south quickly. And I was having a ball. Yeah. So who's going to be your favorite character in the show? Uh, I got to give it to Maria respect yeah i mean this for for a few reasons uh one of which i think there's always that sense of like um i think you're drawn to the parts that you probably would have played in high school and (laughs) but um aside from that i mean i just i mean this is just gonna be a podcast where we just like are obsessed with people um but I think Grace McLean is so brilliant and so great in that role because it's, you've got all of the warmth, but also like, oh man, when she's a force, she is such a force. And you just get such a good sense of who that woman is, both in society, but also, you know, every girl should have like a Maria looking out for her because it's like, that is the, the person you want in your corner. Star of the 2020 Goodspeed Festival, Grace McLean. Indeed. Um, who we love and adore, we should say. We are friends. We adore her. We do. She's incredibly talented. And again, I do, I kind of can't, I can't imagine doing that and anyone else doing that part. Like she was so fantastic. Yeah. So fantastic. Yep. So who is your favorite character? Look, Anatole is hot. He loves, I mean, I really, I so enjoy the character. He's such a douche. 
but I think he's so fun to watch and entertaining and sly in the right way. But the way Lucas Steele embodied him and just the way that was staged, I, I he is oodles of fun and a delightful villain of sorts. And uh, so he's my favorite. Yeah, that's a good call too. And it's funny. I mean, I think a shout out to Lucas Steele for taking a part that could have been in in another world, like a very kind of boring, handsome scoundrel leading man and just putting all these interesting inflections in it. Like the, the, Anatole is sort of like half like space alien robot too. It's kind of like, there's, a, there's something very odd about that portrayal that makes it even more special that, and understandable that he would be the guy who would walk in and he would be like, who is that guy? Right. Like he just has this magnetism about him. Like yeah, when he like, I just, yeah. Uh, so what's going to be your favorite catch-all miscellaneous thing about Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812? Okay, I'm not actually going to say the dumplings um, because it's, it's too predictable that I would go for the carbohydrates involved in the theatrical production, um, but I did appreciate the food. Um, what I will say is the set. Um, I, I was going to say basically the same kind of the whole concept of what yeah, they did. It's yeah. unbeatable. Yeah. And the costumes too. I mean, shout out to Paloma Young who did them. Um, just kind of the perfect. And a lot of people try that where it's like a mishmash of the sort of historical car- like costumes with a kind of con- very contemporary cool spin. Um, the, like steampunk almost. Yeah. Kind it's of. Like almost like a kind of boho steampunk um and it, it just was very cool. It was authentically very cool. If you're gonna do that, it has to be actually cool. It can't just look like the parody of coolness. And um, it was all just so beautiful. I mean, like if, if that whole team had been like, we'll come make your house look like this, I would have been like, sign me up. I will put red velvet all over my house. I will I will take those chandeliers, which look like the same thing as the Met, put them in my, I mean, like it, just perfect. It was so good. If they had sold, wearable versions of those chandeliers at the gift shop you would absolutely have purchased them oh yeah definitely i mean but like yeah and mine's the same i mean it's just the entire concept the people being around us choosing to conceive the show that way and execute it that way and and how well it was done is masterful direction by rachel chafkin and her lighting designer who carved out every inch of that space and you know good directing is often you you're just telling people where to look and when and there was never a doubt where and when you should be looking at things even though there was so much going on we always knew where we were supposed to be looking and i and it's i just it's masterful it rachel chafkin just come on there it's there are no words it's masterful yes agreed and that brings us to our next to last segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. You know, obviously this is the newest show that we have talked about on the podcast. And so its place in the canon, we kind of don't know because it hasn't. Uh, we don't know for sure, I guess, is really the way to talk about it. But kind of going off of what we immediately just talked about, though, I think that immersive staging is why it's groundbreaking. And 
I don't know that we will see other things staged in that same way, uh, but I do think that it is a revolutionary way to look at doing musical theater on Broadway. Yeah, it, I think you're right. I think it kind of showed that there's much more than you could do than than just a proscenium seating. And I think that's good. I mean, I hope that the definition of what Broadway is is kind of loosening a little bit. Um, I think it also is kind of the apotheosis of a lot of the things that we see in theater uh, during this time. Like, obviously the costumes being a blend of the historical and the, the hip is something that we saw before with something like Spring Awakening. But there was such a lushness to this that was very different from the spareness of a lot of the shows that had gone before. And of course that immersive wraparound from the moment you entered the theater, uh, just mind boggling surround with this lush, beautiful gorgeousness, um, which had been done a little bit before in a show like Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which also was very stylistically striking, but not to this degree, not to the point where the performers were surrounding you and the voices were coming from behind you sometimes and there were staircases leading up to the balcony and and it was just all around you in a in a really beautiful gorgeous way and then also you know i mean it's hard to it's hard to put dave malloy i think in in the context of other composers because he is is so much doing his own thing but it heralds the arrival of a really interesting new voice in musical theater yeah, I think that is the, and in some ways, like, same goes for Rachel Chafkin and many of the artists who were a part of creating it. It's like a, a new guard almost of what the, some of the future big deals in, um, in theater. Yeah. In, and in musical theater, in Broadway, and what we consider to be mainstream. Absolutely. For it only having premiered on Broadway, I guess now four years ago almost, um, but we still don't quite know. And maybe it will be a show that will kind of evaporate into, oh, it was great when they did it and no one's done it since. I, you know, who knows uh, in the world in which we now live. But it is, there is, I think my takeaway is that there is more to the show than just this phenomenal production of it. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I think that wraps it up for our deep dive into Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Uh, but we do have one last segment, What Comes Next? What Comes Next? Where Annika gives us a fun fact, bit of trivia hint about what show we'll be diving into next episode. So Annika, what is this episode's clue? Well, for the next episode, we are going to be diving into a show that started the ticket lottery system. And for those in the audience that might not know what that is, what is that? So a ticket lottery system is previously to this, if you wanted to get a cheap ticket to the show day of, and usually these were in the front row or bad visibility seats, you would have to come uh, get online and hopefully be one of the first people in line. So everybody was trying to be one of the first people in line to get those tickets. This show, changed that system so that you no longer had to try to get there to be the first person online. Instead, you would get there at a certain time, put your name in a hat, and they would pull from the hat the people who would get those tickets. A great clue, Annika. I know what the answer to that one is, but I'll be curious to see if any of our listeners do. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs>
This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!